Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings and welcome to our deep sea domain. This is Under Consultation, an episode by episode podcast type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and we're not just the best podcast about the best video game challenge TV show. Blow me, we're also the funniest. We're also the only. Which by default makes us the funniest. The two sweetest words in the English language. Default. But having just recently shaved off all my body hair for a dare, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on, and you're looking great for it. This episode aired on the 21st of November 1996. FIFA 97 is top of the video game charts. Robson and Jerome are still top of the pops with their AAA side, and we have a new number one at the top of the UK box office, kicking and screaming. I'm going to Prague. So how will that work if you're living with me in Brooklyn? Well, it'll be the same, except I'll be in Prague. It's time to turn to your friends for support. How about worst-case scenarios after graduation? Jane dumps me to move to Prague. I spend the rest of my life with you idiots. How long can you avoid commitment? Want to get married? Yes. Yes, I do. I didn't want to have any attachments. Yeah. Me too. Hi. Compromise. Whatever you want. What, what do you want to do? I don't care. What do you want to do? Before Alan, right after your mother, I went to bed with a woman. She was dead. I, I'm not really ready to accept you as a human being. Honesty. Can we uh, just admit some lies that we may have told each other? I didn't say a word. I thought he knew. So express yourself. No, I, I can't stand you. I can't stand that. Is that a pyjama top? Kicking and screaming, mid-90s comedy drama about a group of college graduates who are just like, I don't want to let go of this college lifestyle. To be honest, having now spent most of my life in the adult world, I can entirely understand that. It's fucking awful. It's got an okay cast, notably former Marty McFly. Never was Marty McFly, Eric Stoltz. Also, Parker Posey's in it. 
Yeah, Josh Hamilton's in the movie. It's, it's an okay cast. It's, it's Noah Baumbach's directorial debut, who I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm not the biggest fan of. Yeah, because the most notable thing about this is the production side. It's the first production for one Jason Blum. And when I saw that, I was like, the Jason Blum of Blumhouse. So we were kind of like talking, and, and it is, but we were talking like before we started recording this, that like my knowledge of Blumhouse, the Blumhouse kind of came onto my radar and stuff, but Jason Blum as a person was through Blumhouse's first uh, production, things like The Purge. And we, like on my old movie podcast I used to do with my current uh, wrestling podcast co-host, we love Jason Blum. He's the smartest producer in Hollywood because he spends minimal amounts of money and makes a load of it. He's a smart man when it comes to horror. He basically is like, well, let's just make this for $30 million and we'll make $100 million on this opening weekend. And he works for him virtually every single time. And when you know Universal did their big reboot of the Universal Monsters and they brought in Tom Cruise to do The Mummy and Johnny Depp was going to be the Invisible Man, Javier Bardem was going to be Frankenstein's monster and Angelina Jolie was going to be the bride and all this that and the other. Me and Ollie were just out there being like, Get Jason Blum to do this because you are making a mistake number one by spending 300 million on this first movie when you should just be spending 30 million and making this a not low budget horror movie, but a smaller budget horror movie where you'll just make a load of money off the top of it. And lo and behold, what did they do after that movie failed? Turned to Jason Blum and they did The Invisible Man instead with Elizabeth Moss. And it was a much better movie on a much lower budget and made much more money. Jason Blum is a modern day and respectable Roger Corman. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong, I love a lot of Corman's films, but you wouldn't loan Roger Corman money. You know what I mean? No. I mean, I love Corman, love him to, you know, love love his canon of films a bit. I own a whole bunch of them. Big shout out once again, Chopping Mall. Absolutely, yeah. The greatest Fantastic Four movie ever made. I had this discussion, I don't think it was with you, I think it was with someone else, where I just said, no, Corman's Fantastic Four is the best Fantastic Four movie because it's the only one that didn't try and make it overly serious. Although the one memory of that Fantastic Four movie that always sticks in my head is when the Thing's girlfriend is abducted by Mole Man and they cut to her point of view as she falls unconscious. There's a problem with that, Luke, because apparently when you chloroform a blind person, they briefly get their vision back. (laughs) Do you think medical science is aware of this? But no, this, this is Jason Blum's producing debut he managed to obtain financing after getting a letter from steve martin who was a friend of the family endorsing the script and essentially when blum was sending it around hollywood he put that letter on the front because you would it's a classic hollywood story about like how did you get your start here you know i'm a plucky upstart i've just played steven spielberg director's chair i'm ready to get going on my movie career what do i need to do and jason blum's advice is be a family friend with steve martin one of the most powerful people in the industry and he can get your film financed and it's it's not what you know it's who you know and who and often sometimes who you blow or both or in in some cases all three or who do you share your blow with? Yes, exactly. And it's, it's you know, it's always oh, a classic story of a, a boy made good. No, like he basically would have got this film made. He's family friends with Steve Martin. He was about to fall into the industry somehow. Although in fairness to Jason Blum, he didn't become complacent. And where he is today, he has done through being very smart with his money and also being a 
pretty good producer, whether you like the films or not. I think his movie. I think his movie output is great. I think the Purge franchise is superb. It is a deeply uncomfortable watch, but it's meant to be. Like it's like you know, no one's no one's meant to be watching these movies and going, yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant little franchise, and I, I, I think it gets the the respect that it sometimes I think deserves. Noah Baumbach, as I said earlier, like I'm not the the biggest Noah Baumbach fan, like particularly because like his style of movie just doesn't work for me in the same way he does a lot of stuff with Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson stuff doesn't work for me either. However. I am excited for his next project. And it ties into Games Master here because his next project is the script he co-wrote with Greta Gerwig, the Barbie movie. That is going to be a fascinating venture. And more to the point, I think the movie on screen is going to be fascinating. I'm hoping we get a really good tell-all book at some point about how they get it to the screen because there is no way that is not a complicated cluster f- in progress. I, I have spoken with Tom Kalinsky when he was... Um, I, mean, I, I interviewed him when he was for working for Sega or about his time working for Sega, but he talked about his time working in Mattel and the, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie they were trying to get work done at Sega and he compared it to the Barbie movie they tried to get made in the 1980s. And in the end, they decided, we're not going to do it for X, Y, and Z. We read about that in a book I wrote. In the 1980s, they were so scared to do it, but here now in 2022, they're more than happy to do this. And I, I wonder if there is like a point between, I've got the starting point in 1980, 86, or whatever it is, through to 2022, and if there are other points along the way of other various different things. I would love to, like, I maybe, maybe this in the next book I'll write will be the detailed history of the various Barbie movies they try to make. Uh, just quickly looking at the TV news, I'm just going to mention this one here because it's it's kind of an interesting thing because it ties into something that's going to be happening in a couple of weeks' time. Well, actually, next week we'll talk about it on the podcast, but it also ties into something that we've had featured on this show previously on Games Master. So this was from an article written on November 21st, 1996 in a magazine called Campaign Live. Campaign Live, as far as I can tell, is a magazine that's basically about advertising. And this is a story about how Weller had sponsored Baywatch on ITV. And then ITV had made the decision to stop showing Baywatch for a little bit and instead show Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And Weller were then like, well, what happens to our sponsorship money that we've already spent on this? What happens to all of our marketing plans that we have got sort of planned around this? So this is what the article wrote. According to ITV, Baywatch has been suspended from air for eight weeks before the program caught up with its US schedule. An ITV representative said, we began transmission earlier than intended because Sequest 2032 wasn't delivering what we had hoped for. Which is what we had featured on Games Master not that long ago. Baywatch was brought forward and production schedules got ridiculously tight. A new US import, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, will run in the 5.30 slot on Saturdays and is set to compete against BBC One's The Simpsons, which will air on 5.30 from November 23rd. Since early summer, ITV has aggressively revamped its weekend schedule to try and maintain audience share. With next year's Channel 5 launch and the increasing presence of satellite and cable TV, scheduling is set to sharpen in 1997. But one media source said, this is a monumentous cock-up, which makes the broadcaster look stupid. Yes. Pretty much, because they were just like, well, what do Weller do now? Like, Weller are just like, they've got a few months and not broadcasting until the Easter. That's, a, that's like four or five months away. But anyway, I just thought I'd bring that to light before we jump into the magazine. Let's take a trip to the letters page. We haven't done that for quite a few months. And hey, you never know what. A lot has gone on. The Nintendo 64 is out there. The PlayStation is ruling supreme. The Saturn is being the Saturn. And the PC is low-key becoming a major powerhouse. So surely the landscape of the letters page has changed. This letter is titled, Wanna Buy a 3DO? (laughs) (laughs) 
Dear Games Master, I am quite short of funds, but have decided I must have a decent console of the next-gen variety. I have long been interested in a 3DO, and now they are about £90. I'm really interested. But I fear the machine is not having many new releases, and now you say there may not be an M2 upgrade? Do you think maybe around Christmas, especially with the N64 coming, the price of the Saturn will come down? And that's from Kev Ferguson in Dorchester. Kev Ferguson from Dorchester there has made one bad choice and opted for a 3DO and then opted to make a second bad choice in going for a Sega Saturn instead. I can't be too harsh because, Luke, I own a Sega Saturn now and I'm still interested in owning a 3DO. That's slightly different. That's in 2022 eyes. Ah, oh, that's nostalgia talking. That's nostalgia talking. This is present day talking. I was like, I've got, th- I've got four options in front of me. Five include a PC, a 3DO, a Sega Saturn, a PlayStation, a Nintendo 64, and I'm opting for the 3DO or the Sega Saturn. Well, they're cheaper, Luke. Well, I, I think that was Sega's big plan. We'll be the cheapest one. We'll be first to market and we'll be the cheaper one. Not that the second part of that actually worked for them. About the only one that's pulled that off, not even being the first to market, it's just being the cheaper one, Nintendo. Yeah. Anyway, Games Master do have a reply. You sound a mixed up kind of guy, Kev. As we confirmed last issue, the N64 won't arrive on these here shores until March 1st next year, so Sony and Sega will have Christmas all to themselves. Both are already feverishly denying that they'll drop the price at Christmas or that we'll see mid-price classics appearing by then. It's true that the 3DO is a bit of a snip at £90, but there'll be very, very little software appearing for it in the future. If any, both Panasonic and Goldstar closing their 3DO departments should hint at the machine's future. The M2 upgrade is ages away too, and the 3DO company are concentrating their attention on PC land. Yeah, I think the the 3DO is a dead duck at this point. And they've got a little photo, not friend of the podcast, which is a shame because he could probably lend us a few bob, Trip Hawkins, with the caption of, Trip Hawkins claimed the 3DO would change the universe. As it turned out, it was a complete turkey. He's involved in M2 now. So, here we are, months down the line, still letters about the 3DO. Yeah, I'm almost certain we've had that letter like printed like almost word for word in a previous issue on this show. Except, like, instead of 3DO or Saturn, it's 3DO or PlayStation. Yeah, exactly. Or it's a, I'm a 3DO owner, are there any new games coming out? Okay, so same as it ever was with that letter, maybe this next letter will do us better. It's titled, Jaguar Dumper. Mm. I never thought when we would do an episode based in November 1996, we'd still be getting letters about the bloody Atari Jaguar. I mean, not to peel back the curtain too much, you know that if we do see letters in this magazine about the Jaguar, I'm going <laughs> to pick those. Yeah. I mean, it's not interesting to pick them. They're, they're, they've been printed. No, it's November 1996. This console was dead by like March 94. Dear Games Master blokes, I am writing after reading John Benge's letter in Games Master 46. I too was a Jaguar owner hoping to get my hands on a CD drive, but as John points out, Atari are wind-up merchants, especially when trying to put Jag CDs on the shelves. After about 11 months of my Jaguar, I'd had enough, so I sold it and bought a second-hand PlayStation. Even though the PlayStation is bloody smart, sometimes I miss the old chunky 16-button and the gore of doom. By the way, I don't think John needs to save his money for long. I saw the Jag CD for $49.95 in Electronics Boutique not so long ago. So this is a former Jaguar owner. This isn't someone going, when are we getting Alien vs. Predator 2? This is someone that's already consigned it to the great dental hygiene office in the sky. Well, he's a smarter man uh, than most, perhaps, although he does miss the... De- Having said that, but Doom will be on the PlayStation soon enough, mate. You'll be all right. Uh, Gamesmaster replies, the problem with the Jaguar is software support. Lack of it. There are really only a handful of games in its back catalogue to make you go, ooh... 
The rest can be done on your Mega Drive or SNES. The new consoles are where the exciting stuff's going on and where developers are concentrating their talents. One thing I noticed with both of those letters is actually compared to Games Master Magazine past, the replies for the most part are not, oh, look at this chump. Like we were. Yeah. Jaguar Dumper is the smarter guy. That was uh, Julian Ware from Hassocks. But Games Master Magazine are actually just going, no, here's the deal. You don't want the Jaguar. PlayStation, Saturn, that's where the support is. 3DO, yes, it's cheap. You will have a back catalogue of games. They are actually not doing consumer advice, but definitely not just like backhanding people away, which the letters may not have changed, Luke, but I think to some degree, the tonality of the replies have. Good evening and welcome to Games Master. It's not just that we're the best video game show on telly, blow me, we're also the funniest as well. Now, we get a lot of letters sent in from you. Thank you very much for all of them. Here's one which uh, particularly tickled my pink. It's from Riff Tonga from Newton Merns, and it goes, Dear Dominic, I have watched your show for 17 years, and I've always wanted to see a show where you have that kid, Martin Mathers, on, doing some more Virtua Cop stuff like last series, plus that great mindbender Yuri Geller doing well, well, well anything. Really, yours, Riff. Well... Would you? Adam and Eve at Rift, but that's exactly what we've got on today's show. Isn't that incredible, girls? Wow, it's unbelievable. Mm, quite literally. Well, Dom's tonality when it comes to letters hasn't exactly changed between Series 5 and Series 6, because I'm pretty sure, Ash, this is a very real letter. Definitely, absolutely real, because we open the show, Dom and the Murs are going through the reader's letters. That's what I'm calling them now, the Murs, because my shorthand, I was just like, I'm tired of typing mermaid. So M-E-R-S. Honestly, it took me until last episode to stop calling them the angels in my notes. I mean, angels is a shorter word than mermaid. But we have a letter here from Riff Tonga, who's been watching for 17 years. Well, that's longer than we've been watching it. Mate, we've got a number of seasons that clearly we've missed. Maybe they're hidden around all those tapes of Starcade or something. Riff's like, I really want to see more of that Martin Mathers, kid. Also, how about some Yuri Geller? What about getting that fella on? I mean, Luke, what are the chances, particularly given we're talking about a very well-respected and definitely not fraudulent psychic, that that is exactly what is lined up for today's show? I can't believe it. As Leanne and Teresa put it, it's unbelievable, quite literally. I loved this opening. Yeah, it's great. Like, and, and, and I think the, the punchline there with, with Leanne and Teresa, like giving them the punchline, which they have done for the last like, you know, four or five episodes, I think was, it's really, really great. I wish we saw more of this earlier, because when it comes to the assistants, it's the mermaids and the goblins. They are the only two sets that have had any real character development or at least character yeah the monks didn't do anything humongoid in series three didn't get to do anything the, the, the diver didn't get to do anything and i think actually the angels didn't really get to do anything it's the same people so yeah i think for me it's, it's the goblins and the mermaids have got actual character and reason to be there but let's get into our first challenge what are we playing games master i was particularly impressed last year with the sterling performance of one Martin Mathers, who exhibited extraordinary skill by playing through the whole of the virtual top arcade game without taking a single hit. So when Martin contacted me recently, claiming he perfected an even more incredible stunt on the arcade sequel, Virtual Cop 2, I immediately summoned him to demonstrate. This is an interesting Games Master opening here because he doesn't actually set a challenge. All he said is that like Martin was on the series last year and he did this incredible thing on Virtua Cop 
and he's now written to me claiming he could do something even better on Virtual Cop 2. So let's see what he can do. And then it's actually Martin himself who sets the challenge, which makes sense continuity-wise because this is not Games Master saying, I am setting you this challenge. This is Martin saying, this is something I can do and I want to show off on TV because, in his own words, he's a cocky git. This is more record breakers than you bet. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's quite an interesting... We haven't had many things like that on Games Master. You know, the whole purpose of the show was you do challenges that are set by the Games Master as opposed to, I can do this thing, let me show it off. And really, we've had that with, like, I think Martin in the last series and The Executioner and in a couple of episodes, Time of the Boss. Also, technically, Danny Curley. Yeah, I suppose in a way. But, like, yeah, Danny Curley's first one, though, was a challenge set by Games Master. But then his other ones were just like, can you beat Danny Curley? I mean, same with Martin Mathers, though. His first appearance was that god-awful Terminator challenge. But then when he came back, it was more like, I can do something really cool. I like it. It's less kind of, like, contrived than the videators type thing that we got on Games World. And I was excited for this challenge. The first time I watched this episode, when I was doing my initial tranche of watching all of Series 6, I was so looking forward to getting to this challenge. And one of the reasons I was so looking forward to getting to this challenge is I'd actually, in my mind, completely conjured up a different ending to this challenge. (laughs) Yeah, I I had remembered what had happened on this one, but I was really looking forward to it because I think the the visual of Martin completing Virtua Cop in Series 5 was really cool but it is a guy just playing a game this is a guy playing two copies of the same game at the same time if anything it's actually more like the puzzle bubble challenge we had in series five on the neo geo mm. and i i want and i like those sorts of challenges I, I i've been really enjoying that side of things with games master and you know kind of like the, the combo breaker stuff that we had and i had remembered what had happened what happens at the end of this challenge but every time I watch it, I am willing for a different ending because I know he can do it. And I'm yeah. really willing for like, oh, this maybe this time I watch it, this will be the time it's different. I mean, with ver- regards to Virtua Cop 2, obviously this was not the last Virtua Cop. We also had a Virtua Cop 3. But it's crazy that in February 1995, AM2's manager, Fumio Kurakawa, said, we're not sure if there will be a Virtua Cop 2. And yet here we are, latter half of 1996. Oh, look, Luke. There's Virtual Cop 2. Not only is there Virtual Cop 2, but in the review section, we get the Saturn version reviewed. Not only that, but like this was released in the arcades in 1995. Yeah, it was the tail end, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... Exactly. So like they're, they're in 95. Like, not sure if we're gonna have another one, then end of 95. By the way, here's another one. Welcome back, Martin. Now, Martin, if I can count you, this is your third appearance yeah. on Games Master. So if I was a kind of cheesy, insincere host, I would say you're an old friend of the show, but unfortunately um, I can't change my name to Andy Peters. Now, you are just uh, about to start university, what are you Um, hoping to do there? uh, I'm going to do journalism, Uh eventually. And have you had all your body hair shaved Um, recently? I'm glad you noticed. Yes, uh, I did make the effort. It's it's my friend Nikki's fault, basically, because she dared me and some of my friends uh, at the pub to shave ourselves, Uh uh, mainly because she doesn't like hairy men. So uh, you you shouldn't dare me shouldn't dare me because uh, I'll do it okay. basically so how I wish I was young again the fun that they have <laughs> now Martin last time you were on you trounced uh, Virtua Cop um, throughout the length of one show what are you going to do for us today uh, tonight I'm still a cocky git so uh, I'm going to play two Virtua Cop machines uh, simultaneously basically but Martin is back 
He's in the tuxedo. The mermaids are flanking him like proto-Bond girls. Dom says this is your third appearance. Thankfully, as he's not Andy Peters, he's not going to call him an old friend of the show. We're seeing like Martin in the you know the the last stage that we're going to see him in his final his final form because he was a child when he came on to well you know probably a teenager when he came on in series one and then he had gone through sort of the production stuff he's a videator and this and the other and here he is you know in series five doing this big arcade challenge and now he's about to become an adult because he's off to study journalism at university which actually does pay off for him because he does later become a video game journalist so credit to him it worked out well for for old Martin. But most importantly, he's also just shaved off all of his body hair. Yeah, so because Dom's just like, have you just have you shaved off all your body? Dom can't see that he's done that because he's wearing a full three piece suit. Be like, okay, am I am I seeing you differently from Series Five? Have you shaved all your body hair? A story that he obviously knows because he probably knows all the people that Martin knows. Yeah, it's like, have you lost weight or just shaved off all your body hair? It's one or the other. But apparently, he did it as a dare from his friend Nikki because she doesn't like hairy men, which makes me think that Martin is trying to get with his friend Nikki. Or it was a pub. And they were all very, very drunk. Could very well be that. He is about to become a student. Uh, and yeah, this is where Martin says, I'm going to play Virtual Cop 2 on two arcade machines at the same time. An incredible skill. What got to wonder how he discovered he could do this? Two Virtual Cop 2 machines side by side in an arcade. And like, like that's it. I mean, I, any time I see a light gun game in an arcade, which has two guns, I am always one of those people that are like, I really, really want to dual wield this. And in fact, it was the first time I went to Heart of Gaming when it was still in North London, when it was still up Acton Way. They had House of the Dead 2 or 3, and I did that entire game dual wielding. Because, of course, free play, so it didn't matter. That was kind yeah. of crap in it. But, oh, wow, the ability to go full Lara Croft John Woo on that game. That was a lot of fun. But then if you have two machines side by side and you add the 50 piece to spare, I'd be tempted. Maybe it started with him dual wielding on one machine and then just escalated. He's like, oh, I could do that. What if? I think for Martin as well, because he knows, you know, this game like the back of his hand at this point, because he could probably play through Virtual Cop 2 on one credit in the same way that he could do with Virtual Cop 1. And if, if the majority of it is just muscle memory and just because like they're always in the same spot, it's just knowing you can do that with both hands. And there was a point that Dave Perry makes uh, once we get into the actual challenge where he talks about how because the machines will start slightly different times, one will be like half a second to a second later than the other. And he says that that's an advantage to Martin. I put it to you that it is not. Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Like me, Sega arcade machines just keep on coming. Touring cars is the latest monstrosity to be on test at the moment. A furious race around the track trying to finish in first position affair. The early version features a selection of tracks and a choice of four vehicles to try them out with. It might not be the much awaited Sega Rally 2, but touring cars should keep people like Tony Adams amused when it appears in arcades all over the country soon. Because, like Dominic Diamond, the Sega arcade machines just keep on coming. Bloody hell, Ash, it's another three. 3D driving game like you know how we in series five when we had that sort of the preview of um arcade machines coming out and dominic diamond was like oh god it's another 3d fighting game 
I'm like that with 3D driving games at this point. I'm fucking sick of seeing them on this show. I mean, Sega had a good thing going. They had their Daytona, they had their Sega Rally, they had their physics and their mechanics worked out, and so it was an easy thing to do. I mean, we're seeing the game here. It's going to public testing. It's got four cars to play over a selection of tracks. Not only that, but this was also being shown at the 1996 Jammer Show. This was a candidate for the magazine feature this week, but it is four pages. Like, this is bordering on something we will come back to down the line for a special because there's sections here for Sega, Konami, Capcom, Namco, Taito, SNK. Um, There's even a whole separate page on Street Fighter EX. Even here, they talk about the big games for Sega were Virtua Fighter 3, which was almost complete, and Sega Touring Car Championship. But we see it here, and i be honest, it still looks pretty good. I mean, maybe it's just because I've got racing game blindness. This looks exactly the same as Sega Rally. It looks the same as Daytona, but it probably hasn't got as good a soundtrack. I think the only, when I was doing some reading up about it, the, the one of the critics who kind of reviewed the game at the time was just like, it's painstakingly real like its realism is both a benefit and a hindrance to it it's it feels so real which is amazing but also it just feels real which makes it really hard to play or it's not as much fun to play as more of the arcadey style that we got with sega rally or daytona or or even like you know manx tt or something like that one of the key things to come out of this despite it being kind of another sega game is a new development team was actually formed to produce this game and it was a kind of an elite team hand-picked 15 people called am annex and it contained a mixture of you know existing old hands from sega probably people that had worked in am2 and such but also new people brought in from the outside maybe the sort of people that would have qualified from that video game school that we saw last week the whole idea was to create this very focused creative team this game was the first result and it meant that they could really get into what touring car was they went they watched videos they checked the cars they did their research the arcade machine has a subwoofer fitted underneath the seat so you are really feeling the engine as you drive i'm not the biggest racing game guy but i do appreciate when if not reinventing the wheel they like add some of those kellogg's clackers that used to get free with the cereal they're doing something to enhance it and some spooky dokes on it. Spooky dokes, there we go. And hey, guess what? There was a Sega Saturn conversion of the game. Yeah, it came out on Windows in 98 as well. Like it's, I I, I quite like the, the final line that uh, Dom's got here, where he said it's going to keep Tony Adams busy. And I only point that out now is because he is going to be busy. He's on the new series of Strictly Come Dancing. Meanwhile, in Sony's research and development HQ in Tokyo, Japanese blokes are going bonkers over what's claimed to be the most advanced 3D TV ever. Yes, it's not a fish tank. It is actually a TV which offers a convincing 3D picture without the need for glasses that make you look like a git. Details are sketchy, but no doubt it'll soon be in stores over here, sporting the kind of price tag only I can afford. These Japanese blokes we spotted at the unveiling of the new TV were a bit confused, though, because that really is a fish tank. Uh, My ex-girlfriend's dad loved 3D tech. At the time that I was going out with this girl was around the time of Avatar and a lot of movie studios putting films out in 3D and stuff because that was going to be like, oh, it's the new big thing to get people in cinemas, 3D movies or whatnot. And, um, you know, it didn't hang around. But he bought himself a 3D TV and he was obsessed with sitting there and watching things in 3D. And every time he talked about it, all I could, I would sort of like go in a bit sort of like muddy behind the eyes and just a bit sort of glassy eyed as I'm chatting about this because I've got zero fucking interest in a 3D television. 
it's amazing that we're seeing one here in 1996 because I don't think like in a video game aspect we don't get a good version of this until the 3DS. But I I never liked 3D movies apart from some of the gimmicky ones in the 80s. But like I've, 3D movies do nothing for me. 3D TV does nothing for me. 3D video games do very little for me. But I, but I will say it looks amazing here, 1996, and of course it could have only have come from Sony. I have a mixed relationship with 3D. Like I love the gimmicky movies of the 80s. I know the one that we're probably both thinking of is Friday the 13th Part 3, because of course we both love that series. But also I love Jaws 3, a lot of the other kind of like cheesy, schlocky movies, the ones where the 3D is truly a gimmick because they are throwing stuff. Let's aim that baseball badge. It's ever so slightly higher because of 3 Oh, it's in your face now. Ooh. For the benefit of those listening, I just waved my hand right in front of the webcam. With the modern movies, my favourite of the modern 3D movies, despite all of its many other flaws, is still Prometheus. Because for the most part, the 3D was not used gimmicky. It was just depth of field. When you've got the scenes with, with David just going around the spaceship by himself, like at the beginning, and he's doing the whole thing of styling his hair, and he's quite often, they've, they've pulled back a lot of the shots just to show that he is completely on his own. The depth of those scenes, because of the 3D technology, I was like, this is great. And a lot of people were like, oh, but it's no, nothing's jumping out at me. You know, I'm not, I'm not getting alien tongues waved in my face. And I was thinking, no, but that's the thing. This technology is more subtle than that. It doesn't need to go blunt force. So I dug that. 3D gaming, I love the 3DS because it uses roughly the same technology as Sony were using here, which is where you don't need glasses. Uh, Auto stereoscopy, I think it's called. I love things like Star Fox 64 3DS because also I love Star Fox 64. I just think that the fact that the 3DS works and works so well is amazing. Like, Like it generates the 3D based on following your head. That's really clever for a little clamshell device. But going back to 1996 and seeing this here, I tried to find more details on this TV. I could not. It's kind of hard when you're searching for Sony 3D TV. Like even when you're trying to like really long tail this search, it is what you're basically just going to get is a lot of just 3D TVs that you can get now made by Sony. Yeah, Sony 3D TV, fish tank, auto stereoscopic. 1996. Yeah, like in Japan, like it's all this sort of stuff. I even tried going either way of going 1995, 1997. I'm sure someone will go, oh, it's this, and please do, because I would love to know a little bit more about it, because Dom makes the joke about it looking like a fish tank, but that's because most of the 3D we see from it is of a fish tank. Because that's an easy way to kind of show what the 3D is, because you're right, like, it's not the, ooh, something jumping out into your face, it's that depth of field, what the 3DS gave you. So yeah, like, I think it's just an easy thing to show, because then you have got fish in the foreground, in the midground, and in the backgrounds. Actually, you know, I've got a whole bunch of notes here on how auto stereoscopy works, and I'm reading it, and my eyes are glazing over just reading my own notes. So yeah. what I can say is the way this technology works, it works like your 3DS. That's it. Finally, uh, let me share with you my favourite game of the moment, Barbie Fashion Designer. This surprisingly original title allows me to design my very own Barbie outfits. I can select from the hundreds of options on offer or even use a scanner to sample patterns of my own choice. Here are just some I stole from a high street haberdashery. Once I've designed my dream outfit, I can preview it in the catwalk mode. Even better, I can then print my designs on the special Barbie fabric paper included cut them out and dress my Barbie dolls in the clothes I've designed on the computer. 
You just can't get me off this one. Our last news item here is the one that interests me the most. Because I think this is really cool. Dom's put this in here to make fun of it. And in a series five, this would have been a this would have been a CD-ROM of the week type thing. But this I think is the most interesting news item of the week. Like, because this is if you are a fan of Barbie and you are a fan of uh the uh, fashion and things like that. You can go on, do like a fashion show thing, print them on special paper, cut them out, and you can dress your Barbie up with it. I think that's a really cool thing. This is a pretty cool interactive CD-ROM. This is very gimmicky, but it's also a neat idea. It's a great idea. The real gimme on it is, okay, so you go through, you can use pre-made stuff, you can probably change the textures, change the patterns, you can even scan your own things and convert it and do whatnot. Then you get your virtual little catwalk, which Dom seems very taken with, and then you can print it out and put it on your real Barbie. But no, you don't just print this on your standard photocopy paper, do you, Luke? No, you have to print this on specific Mattel release printable paper so once you've run out of the four sheets that they give you in a box you've then got to go to the store and buy another 20 ah there we see there's the loot crate idea there's the money spinner all those canny bastards despite this obvious cash grab because there's no way those kids are like getting it right first time when they're designing these clothes or cutting it out right with their child safety scissors this still sold gangbusters in the us alone it sold almost four hundred thousand copies this game outsold doom and quake in its first year thus is the power of barbie i put it to you luke can you design out of the box custom outfits for your quake grunt well that's exactly it quake and doom are just games within a box this is an interactive toy like really like this isn't any different from the steven spielberg feature we get later on like i think this is a very cool thing you know dom's here to make fun of it because games master has always made fun of barbie we'll go back to the series one where they did the horror games thing i think this is a very very cool idea and you know it added it received criticism because you know it's the stereotypical feminine themes and i wanted to highlight this thing i hear i read reading on the wikipedia page which was from purple moon founder brenda laurel who said the game perpetuated a version of femininity that was fundamentally lame. Now, Purple Moon was a group that were there to design games made for girls that weren't supposed to play up to those stereotypes and stuff. Uh, And they released a series of games. And I wanted to highlight this story here because the great irony of it is that those games didn't sell and that company was bought in 1999 by Mattel. Yeah, it looks like the <laughs> upper hand is on the other foot. Exactly. That is peak Mattel behavior, though, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it just? It's amazing. It's wonderful corporate nonsense. <laughs> like It's awful business. But it really did like bring a chuckle to my face. Like, of course Mattel bought them. Of all the companies that were going to buy them, it was going to be the one that, was critis- that were being criticized the most by them. I am surprised that we didn't get a G.I. Joe or Action Man version of this. Maybe we did, because you'd have thought this would be the sort of software where they're like we can reskin this so it's now like it's like covert ops action man outfit generator you yeah. can choose from over 20 different types of camouflage pattern i was gonna say you could just rebadge it you fool like you'd have been fine but this interactive cd-rom of all the various kind of like pish cd-roms we've had this one does look the most interesting because whilst it is cynical whilst it is a cash grab whilst it is very much reinforcing gender stereotypes some actual work was put into this title. I put it to you that this is better than most of the CD-ROMs of the week we got back in Series 5. With the exception of the Full Moon one, I think this is better than most of the ones we got. 
this is better than the Independence Day one we had, we had the other week, and I owned that. Welcome back. We have the undisputed king of the Virtual Cop Arcade Game Series, Martin Mathers, in the studio. He's going to attempt to play two games of Virtual Cop 2 simultaneously. You may have noticed we've got an altogether more romantic lighting setting. Now, that's not just because Dave Perry is here beside me. It's because we are playing a very light-sensitive game there. Dave, Martin's playing the two games at once. Can you do two things at once? Can I do two things at once? Um, probably I can, because I seem to be extremely good at everything I do singularly. Uh -huh. um, but Martin, I must admit, with Virtua Cop, he is a supreme games player. And the thing he's going to have to look out for on this is obviously one machine will start slightly, maybe a tenth of a second slower than the other, so he'll get vital time on one machine. If he can spot which one, he may stand a chance. But this is a hell of a challenge. Dave Perry is in the booth, because of course he is. This is a serious challenge, and they've had to lower the lights down. You know, create a bit of a sexy atmosphere for this challenge because it's a light-sensitive game. My favourite thing, however, about this little back and forth between Dom and Dave is that Dom, as we saw throughout Series 5, was always making fun of Dave Perry every time that Dave Perry spoke. And he was doing it in Series 4 as well. Here in Series 6, Dave has finally cottoned on to this because Dom sets him up to be like, what's two things you can do at once? And Dave essentially ignores this question and just talks about Martin instead. He's just like, well, I'm great at doing most things singularly. Anyway, Martin over here and just talks about the challenge goes back into his series one and two Dave Perry mode. I get that he was trying to deflect Dom's joke, but also the problem is what he said didn't actually make any sense. Well, that's because he's, he's trying to ignore him and move on. But the problem is it makes him sound more of a fool because Dom's like, what's two things you can do at once really, really well? And Dave's like, well, you know, everything I do singularly, I'm really good at. So obviously I'd be good at doing two things at once as well. That's not how it works. It really isn't. Like, he's not the best at deflecting this in the same way that he's he does not play off Dom as well as Kirk does or, you know, or, or Rick does or anything like that. Or even actually oh, David Lynch does. Not David Lynch, Derek Lynch. This is the second time I've done that on this podcast. Dominic Diamond <laughs> with David Lynch. <laughs> I bet you David Lynch would play off Dominic Diamond better than Dave Perry does. He tries to fit in, but he is the square peg of this round hole of a series lineup. Like we are basically at a point now where everyone knows what this show is. And I think Dave Perry now knows what this show is. It's just it's not a show that he wants to be a part of. And, you know, we are on the countdown to him no longer being a part of it. We are only a handful of episodes away from our final Dave Perry appearance. But Dave does turn his attention to Martin, does deflect Dom's question. And he's like, this is an incredible feat that has to be achieved. And he talks about this slight lag between the machines because they both start at the same time. And he's like, well, if you can spot which machines that is, that will give him vital time. I mean, you see it. It's very obviously the right-hand machine is a second later. I'm just looking at it and going, I think this would be easier if they were in perfect sync because I'm sure with enough practice, if they were in perfect sync, your hand movements, because it is muscle memory, and if you got your stance right, maybe that would be easier. But because of the slight lag, he does have to be flipping his attention between both of them. Yeah, I kind of agree with Dave and also disagree with him in the sense because I agree with what you're saying as well. Because I think being able to look between both screens might benefit you in some way. Because this isn't like Time Crisis where you can just put your foot down on one pedal and take it off on the other so that you are constantly ducking down and not being shot at. This really is a case of you, know, you just got to keep your eye on both screens and look at where your targets are, are, are pointing towards. And if it is a case of muscle memory, you probably can just move your hands at exactly the same time as opposed to doing it on a slight lag. And even if you're doing it at the same time, you could probably reload at the same time as well. Yeah. I mean, as we get to the end of this, I think it probably is the lag that does him in. Maybe if rather than just a notional amount of lag, it would be a case of, right, start the first machine, 
wait three seconds, start the second. So it was a deliberate delay because then you know there is always going to be an animation cycle. So you're finishing one while the other is loading the next. Maybe that would work better. That's that's what kind of happens at things like GDQ when they do players playing two games at the same time. There's a fabulous challenge uh, from a few years back of uh, a player playing Punch-Out and Super Punch-Out at the same time on the same controller. He basically sets the game up in a certain way and sort of like uses pauses at certain times to pause one game so he can play on another one or sort of unpause that game so he can play onto the other one or setting it up so that when you get a cutscene on Super Punch-Out, you can finish your round on Punch-Out. And I think that's probably what Martin needed to do here was start one of the games just a slight couple of seconds later as opposed to just relying on that lag. Absolutely agree with you. Also, Dom has one of his classic diamondisms here where he says... So the idea is to try not to knock one off both wrists at the same time. He also apologises for being half a teapot. This is very impressive. Like, watching Martin play through this, like, he does know exactly where everything is. It is all muscle memory for him at this point. And he gets every single thing right. And Dave is literally saying how close he is to the end of this game and this level and this challenge when he shoots a hostage on the left-hand screen and it just comes up minus one life. And the look on Martin's face is, damn it, because I bet you he hasn't failed at this challenge in quite some time. This is probably the first time he's bollocksed it in a while. And he genuinely looks gutted that he's f***ed it here. I was so into this. As I said earlier, the first time I watched this, so just watched it for kind of initial thoughts without taking any serious notes, I'd completely forgotten that he biffed this challenge. And so when this happened, I was like, what? What? I, I, I was just like, but no, he wins this challenge, doesn't he? I thought he won this challenge and got his joystick, the one that he was denied at the end of the first Virtua Cop challenge. Am I watching the wrong version? I think it's because this is one of the most remembered challenges from Games Master, a guy playing two copies of Virtual Cop 2 at the same time. And I think it just means that we collectively have all remembered that he won the challenge because we just remember the spectacle of him doing it as opposed to, no, the one he won was the one in Series 5 when he just played through the one game uh, without taking without losing a credit. Well, Martin, talk us through those closing stages again then, telling us what, what you did wrong. I was going fine coming down across the balcony, down to the last stage. Hostage pops up. He looked too much like Peter Andre for my liking, so I just had to do the only humane thing, unfortunately. It's a, it's a very understandable thing and a very unselfish act. I thought so. Forgo the joystick and whack Peter Andre. It's, uh, it's the only thing to do. Tell us, Martin, exactly how far away you were from the end of the challenge. Okay, well, it came down. There's that man, the hostage. Row of four, another hostage, and then just the last one, that's it. So it was desperately close. Too close. Far too close for my life. Now, Martin, did the uh, did the, the the lack of body hair come into it at all? Yes. Uh, when the friction of the suit, you know, static electricity, that kind of thing. It's, I'm I'm blaming it on that. Oh. And I'm I'm sorry, but it's it's Nikki's fault for daring me. Nikki, I'm never talking to you. Okay. So. Did I see you get talking to one of my cameras? Oh. Sorry. Just because it's his third appearance on the show, he thinks he can get cocky. Oh, well. But as gutted as he looks, he does make his way down for the post-match. And suddenly, Luke, all of this becomes clear. It's not the lag. It's not the delay. It's not the studio lights. The guy looked like Peter Andre. What are you going to do, Luke? Yeah, it's an easy joke at the time to make, isn't it? And, you know, like Dom, Dom plays along with it, being like, you're doing a service to all of us by refusing a Games Master joystick just so you could shoot Peter Andre. Great stuff. But like he does genuinely, like he reiterates, he was five or six shots away from finishing that level. He was so 
so close. He could smell the aftershave of the finish. He was so close of it. But, you know, at the end of the day, he blames the lack of body hair, the friction caused by the suit, and especially Nicky, who was the person who dared him to shave it off in the first place. It's over. He's never talking to you again. Dom's like, hey, 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 my cameras. Just because this is your third appearance on the show here, you're not part of this show. You are still just a challenger on this show, so behave yourself. But get out of here before you become bold and start wearing nice suits. It is quite remarkable that we've had Martin on the show three times. He had three bites of the apple, he only successfully did it once, and he didn't get shown being given a Games Master Golden Joystick. So there's literally no video evidence of him getting a Games Master Golden Joystick. Maybe if we get some more Games Master, if we get a Series 9, we can get Martin back on to play three arcade copies of Virtua Cop 3. Or just redo this challenge, because he knows he can do it. And be like, you got a second chance at getting this. I, cause I think that would actually be a really, really fun callback challenge, like we had with Chrissy Two Sticks. I think that'd be a really fun callback. Absolutely. First up, kick in, dandy dress, people in Killer Instinct Gold. Remember, scores in magazines are unrealistically high. Ours are tougher, like Sergeant Cryer from the Bill. For a start, there are new backgrounds, which are completely 3D and very impressive, much more impressive than the Killer Instinct 2 arcade backdrops. There are also new training modes, including one where you're set a challenge, complete a move or a combo, and you've only got a few seconds to do it. There are also little upgrades to the way the game plays, increasing and reducing damage of certain attacks, making it easier to link certain moves and combos together, giving everyone the chance to string up to 90 hits together. The moves and the combos are so phenomenally complicated that you really do need to have a complete understanding of the fighting game genre just to complete them. I'm particularly not that interested in Killer Instinct Gold. If I wanted to decipher more and more complex button presses, I'd actually try to learn Morse code. Up first in the reviews, we've got Killer Instinct Gold, which we had featured as a challenge a couple of episodes ago. And what we basically see here is Ed kind of talking about the basic gameplay mechanics, talking about how it's easy to do combos, 3D backgrounds, this and the other. And Rick talking about how he doesn't really like beat-em-up games, which we've seen from Rick a lot throughout his Games Master run, which is that Dave Perry is the beat-em-ups guy, Rick Henderson isn't. I mean, he likes the one that we get in the next uh, review, although it does get a lower score. Rick makes the point that I think a lot of we've made on this show before. Killer Instinct is not a pick-up-and-play game. It is a pick-up and spend time dedicating yourself to it in order to get good. And I think for Rick, that's a real detractor to it. And actually, in a way, it's a detractor to me as well. And same as well. You can get player guides and fighter guides for most games. I don't think you should need it to get good, or you shouldn't need a game pack to get good. And I would say for the majority of people, not all, because there are some absolute geniuses at fighting games out there, but for Killer Instinct Gold, you, you almost need to study the game. Rick likes beat-em-ups, when they are accessible, when you can pick it up and play it. And even if you're not an expert, you don't feel like a chump. I get that. I absolutely get that. You know, Killer Instinct Gold, it is quite a deep game. There is quite a lot going on in it. I think the score here is fair, which is interesting because right at the beginning of this review section, Dom does say magazine scores are too generous and there's a tougher, like Sergeant Crowther from The Bill. 
I think 89% is actually a very fair score for Killer Instinct Gold. I reckon most magazines would have been in the 93, 94 range. Like, I think it would easily have been in the 90s. But yeah, uh, it doesn't surprise me that it's in the 80s here for Games Master. Although they did love Killer Instinct, you know, back in Series 5. You could kick even more people in in Star Gladiators, except this time they're wearing a futuristic pant. Like most beat-em-ups, there are some awesome special moves in this game. For instance, you can do the plasma combo, where in the top left-hand corner of the screen, you get a little bar. If you fill that bar with five moves consecutively, you can pull off the plasma combo, and it is hair-raising. Graphics are really fantastic in Star Gladiator with really nice animation. The only problem is having such smooth animation slows the action down slightly. The futuristic theme is a winner, and I would have to say so is the game. Next up, we've got Star Gladiator, or as its full title is, Star Gladiator Episode 1 Final Crusade, and Dominic Diamond may have got Virtua Fighter nailed down now, but he's calling this game Star Gladiators. God's sake. But this is a Capcom game. It's a little less Street Fighter, a little bit more Battle Arena Toshin Den, which is interesting because Battle Arena Toshin Den 2 was a game that was licensed to Capcom. And we also see a four-button configuration on this rather than your traditional six. I remember playing this game on the PlayStation. I remember really liking this because some of the design work on it is just, it's beautiful. It's really a departure. It's different from what I'm expecting from a Capcom game. And it was very easy to pick up and play, which is especially good because it is also a 3D fighting game. You can move in three dimensions to dodge and move and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a game that's more like Soul Calibur than it is uh, Street Fighter. Like this is Capcom's, technically Capcom's first polygon fighter, uh, sort of taking out uh, Battle Arena's Hoshinden. But and actually, apparently, I was you know, there's a podcast interview uh, with uh, one of the developers on this who said this was supposed to be a Star Wars game. And all of a sudden, like a lot of that then makes sense, you know, with Star Gladiator Episode 1, this and the other. But yeah, it was supposed to be a Star Wars game. We do get our Star Wars fighter later on in our timeline with Masters of Terra Sky. But uh, it's, it's, I, I wonder what how this game would have been received had this been a Star Wars game. Particularly because Masters, when it comes out in a, you know, in a year's time, whatever it is, isn't brilliantly well received. It's not a brilliant game, full stop. I think this game, with this gameplay and a Star Wars skin over the top, would have been way better. I agree. I just always think it's really funny that this was supposed to be a Star Wars game, and the full title of this is Star Gladiator Episode 1. And we are only a handful of years away from episode one of star wars being released in cinemas like we're actually not that long away from the uh the special editions uh, out next year and then the announcement of episode one coming in 1999 but rick talks about the plasma special moves and says some of them are hair raising it talks about the graphics but it's so smooth that sometimes it has the gameplay but rick it comes back to rick who's then like no i think this is a really top game 85 percent which i think feels like a fair score for it an easy to pick up game but it doesn't necessarily have the depth or longevity of your killer instinct goals particularly for your die hard audience finally the home version of virtua cop 2 and for the benefit of viewers whose lips move when they read it's the sequel to virtua cop the Saturn version of virtua cop 2 is fantastic looking remarkably close to the model 2 original thankfully they've also added some new features an extra route at the end of level three, especially for Saturn owners, and ranking mode. The best mode for playing this in once you've finished. Totally going for the highest scores you can get. And speaking of longevity, Virtua Cop 2 on the Sega Saturn here gets 85% from just Ed, because there's no Rick at all in this review. No, Ed is just there by himself and essentially says, 
It's really close to the original. They've added a few extra modes, a few extra paths you can take at the end of certain levels just for Saturn owners. Yeah, it's, it's a good right. game. It's a good conversion. Yeah, and like the reviews at the time for it were a lot of like, yeah, it's a good game, but it's just like Virtua Cop. It's got a short shelf life. Like this is a better rental rather than a pick up and own game. If you are really into your light gun shooters, you will want this. But then again, you'll also be buying all of the light gun shooter games. But for the most part, the reason why these games were always popular in the arcades is because they're good in five to ten minute bursts. You, you generally speaking, you aren't going to just keep going through this over and over again unless you are hardcore into your light gun shooter games you're not gonna there's no there's no expansion there's nothing to keep it building for you other than just beating your own high score i think the appeal for me particularly if at this point in time and actually you know maybe in a couple of years time as well would have been i can memorize the game here because i can play it for free constantly then take it down to the arcade and see if i can beat the next martin mathers yeah i can see that i can absolutely see that as being a thing and maybe martin needs to get this game twice with two Saturns, (laughs) two TVs and two light guns. Okay, that's goodbye, quite literally, to part one. Coming up in part two, we have Yuri Geller on the show. So lock up mums and dads, puppies and pussies because exposure to this man's powers could quite literally make them all bent. My Vectra pierced the hot night air like a bullet. I had a target to hit. No one had done a million before, apart from Big Mike, and that's why he was boss. Except up ahead of me was Jones. Jones was the best the other mob had. The heat was on. Then, it wasn't. Something told me there was big trouble ahead. N4 westbound, Hmm? six miles of stationary traffic. The Vectra's unique traffic master spoke. My radio spat ground. Then I was free, sorted. Jones at jam. I got the bread, and Big Mike made the tea. Celebrate 100 years of the movies with the BBC Concert Orchestra. The ultimate collection of cinema music, featuring 40 of the greatest movie themes ever written. 100 years of the movies, Available now on double CD and cassette. Yours to keep forever. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So what's Rome like? Everyone kisses. Hmm? Couples kiss, waiters kiss. Even the statues are at it. Oh, do try not to join in. The thing is, Kath, I, I miss you. You, you. you didn't pack my blue socks, did you? Pack yourself next time. How's it there? That feels funny. Too, uh, tidy. How's work? They're terrible. They like me. They want me to stay another week. Oh. Oh, that's great. I'm in the most romantic city in the world. And you're not with me. Yes, I am. With Cellnet's digital service, you can make and receive calls in over 50 countries. That's more than any other UK network. Alanis Morissette is the biggest selling album artist of 1996. Stunning number one album is Jagged Little Pill. With six hit singles. Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. Out now. Okay, welcome back to Games Master. Personally speaking, I have just spent £7,642 buying all those products advertised during that break. I think it's probably entirely possible that Dominic would have spent over seven and a half grand on the products in the ad break, particularly if there was, I don't know, like a cheap car that was in there. You probably would have been able to spend that money or a sofa, a nice sofa. A DFS sale. Exactly, yeah. I think it's entirely possible that he did spend over seven and a half grand on the products in the ad break. Or there was a um, an advert for double glazing. Because, you know, yeah, double crazy. glazing, particularly that time, that doesn't come cheap. That's not, no, and they wouldn't have a heat wave they didn't need to worry about, certainly not in 1996. You need to get that double glazing and keep the, keep the heat in. I wish I could not keep the heat in. <laughs> <laughs> Just for listeners, there's been a gap between part one and part two of this episode recording, and during that time in between, the temperature's gone up about seven or eight degrees, and also a car caught fire. And I'm fairly certain it was cooler in the burning car. Well, I wonder if we can have a cooling presence enter our bodies with our next challenge. What are we doing, Dominic Diamonds? This is ahead. Oh, yes, because today we're dealing in mind control. Unfortunately, tubes like this can use mind-sensitive headbands already in the US, but you can also use this, the Mind Drive. The idea is that by wearing a small gadget on your finger, players can steer their computer character to the left or the right simply with an effort of will. The player controls a skier, and the object is to steer accurately between the red and blue gates as you make your way to the bottom of the piste. 
we thought it was time to take one of these wee bits of plastic and test it out for you, the gullible public. Oh look Ash, it's that fraudulent thing from Series 5 that we had. I wonder if we'll have another fraudulent thing to go alongside it. I don't remember Yuri Geller being in Series 5. <laughs> yeah, it's the mind driver. We had it as a news item in, in Series 5. And we're like, you know, in all the research that we did for it, everyone was just like, it's not really a thing you're controlling with your mind. Like if you just sort of let it go, it would more or less play. The game more or less plays itself. Yeah, my main memory of it, because I went back and looked, was the New York Times archive where the journalist who was writing it uh, was just like talking about trying to feel angry and trying to feel calm. And like as they were going down the hill, they were furiously chanting the mantra of the right turn, which was Barbara Bush, Barbara Bush, Barbara Bush, Barbara Bush, which really shows you the time that this was made. Um, It was a bit of a gimmick. Total gimmick thing. It's a total gimmick thing. It was a piece of tat that was mostly harmless. Unlike the guy that's going to play this challenge. Okay, to play this, we obviously needed a celebrity whose mind was even more powerful than mine. Thankfully, uh, we have the man with the most powerful mind in the world. Please welcome Mr. Yuri Geller. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, welcome to the show, Thank Yuri. You. Um, you. Let's talk about the magazine that you've yeah. got, which uh, we can see amply illustrated on your T-shirt. What is Yuri Geller's Encounters? Well, it's the most paranormal magazine in the world. And it's really great because it covers the topics of the unknown, the unexplained, the paranormal, UFOs, extraterrestrials. Uh -huh, and it's a, it's a non-profit-making magazine. Yeah, well, uh, the big part of the profit that I'm getting from it is I'm giving away to save the children. Right. So it's a, it's a great cause. Uh -huh. as, a, as opposed to my yeah. fee I get from the show, which <laughs> I give away to uh, the nearest uh, public house. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we've got Yuri Geller here. Um, we also had Games Master actually tell us what the, the challenge is, which is clearing 15 gates uh, using only your mind. But we've got Yuri Geller here, who uh, just he magically appears next to Dominic Diamond, and there's all this sort of green lighting around and a T-shirt advertising a magazine. So, Ash, Yuri Geller. He's got quite the Wikipedia page, hasn't he? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know my favourite thing about Yuri Geller? What's that? He's no longer on our televisions, apart from when we're researching this f***ing podcast. This is the first time I've had to think of Yuri Geller in... Oh, my God. But how to summarise Yuri Geller without getting sued by him? Because he will sue people for literally anything. I was going to say, like, reading through his Wikipedia page, there is a name that comes up a lot. Because James Randi kind of got involved with Yuri Geller very early in his career, in like the early 70s, when Geller was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And the idea was that Johnny Carson and this uh, Randy fella decided, let's expose this guy because he's just a cheap magician pretending that he's got psychic powers that are given to him by aliens and he can bend spoons because he got so computers from the far distant reaches of space sent him telepathy powers or, or whatever nonsense. Right, we are back. Your Uri was telling me you 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 don't feel what strong tonight I don't is that? I feel strong. It's not all tonight. Right now I'm feel I'm feeling being pressed, and then I can't. Well, I'm not trying like to press you. I really not. Uh, you no, know, you're only I'm, telling me. Well, will you try that or that? Well, I thought that was the idea of uh, <laughs> of uh, no. I'm not. No, I'm not trying to put you down. I, I didn't mean that patronizingly at all because I have seen you on shows, and I I thought. The idea was to show, if, if you possibly could, some of the things that you claim you can do. And I certainly don't want to pressure. And if you don't feel like you can't do it tonight or, or don't wish to try, I certainly don't want to uh, 
make you feel uncomfortable. I, I'm not trying to be skeptical. I would love to see these things. I really would. Right. Um, is there anything else that uh, appeals to you? Now, if I'm pressing again... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, for example, now you asked us before the, the show and yes. this afternoon for one, one of our staff members to draw on a couple of cards and seal them in an envelope, which we have done. Yes. Um, well, let me tell you again. Uh, this didn't bend much, and right now here I'm stuck. I don't feel for it more. So I don't want to be stuck either on an envelope. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd uh, rather tell you that many people are skeptical about these things. They see something happening, and then they want to see it closer and closer. There have been many people running and saying that they can duplicate what I do. Well, I can only say that if I'm on stage and mm -hmm. people see me from far, they can always say that there is some sort of a sleight of hand sure. trickery here. That's true. But I've been working with uh, science quite a lot. And uh, by doing what you see here under controlled conditions, because this is not a controlled condition. When, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, this is not a controlled condition. What I mean is, uh, for instance, in experiments, uh, it's covered with bell jars and there are cameras running and many scientists looking at every point, although you're trying to do the same, but, but this is really not a controlled condition. But again, it's quite difficult for me, and uh, I won't go on something that uh, I don't feel strong for. All right. Well, it doesn't leave us much, does it? Uh, um, we do have three empty canisters. Yep, we, have, we have three empty canisters there, and we have seven over here. <laughs> and, uh, and a bent spoon. And a spoon. And a spoon that's got a, a, a slight bend in it. Uh, no, I'm really, I'm not trying to be it's all right. patronizing it's at all. I wanted this to be a great success Johnny, tonight I feel for you. very good. Uh, I feel very good. Okay, we'll take a break and we'll come right back. And so they set him up so that he would look fraudulent on TV and they exposed him for being fraudulent on TV. And yet somehow... That actually catapulted his career and made him successful because viewers of that show were just like, well, if he was just a real person, he would have done it perfectly. But the fact that he didn't do it, but he can do it sometimes, means that he's probably on the level and he probably does have telepathic powers. I just despair. You expose a guy as a fraud and they're like, Baha, but what if? Yeah, and exporting him as a fraud right at the start, like in the early 70s, and that just like, makes it even easier for him. But yeah, I love James Randi. James Randi, uh, magician and skeptic, because if anyone's, you know, set up to debunk stuff, it's magicians. They literally know how the tricks are done. And in fact, magicians were the ones that got incredibly pissed off at Yuri Geller because they're like, look, He's a fraudster. Really, we know how this stuff is done. Uh, Randy once described some of the tricks that he did, and this also resulted in Geller trying to sue Randy. He said that the stunts are the kind that used to be on the back of cereal boxes. And basically, like as I was saying, like these two names just keep cropping up. This James Randy name just keeps cropping up on his Wikipedia page because it'll be like, and then Geller sued Randy, and then Randy sued Geller, and they went over to court over this sort of stuff. It's like it's insane the amount of like the litigation section of his Wikipedia page is multiple, multiple paragraphs, and that's before you get into the copyright claim stuff. Yeah, because. This dude, connecting back to video games and a few years after this, he tried to sue Nintendo. 
because there's a Pokemon that is essentially based on Yuri Geller. And Yuri Geller was like, this is this does me a disservice. You know, he says it's ripping him off, but really, it's just a psychic with a spoon. That could be anyone, Luke. <laughs> it's not like in the 90s when these games were being made that Yuri Geller was known as the lad that bends spoons. Like, that's all of Dominic Diamond. Dominic Diamond has brought him onto this show so he can make quote-unquote bent jokes or bender jokes. That is why he's here. So let's see. He's also sued Ikea a few years <laughs> after this. That's so good, because Ikea released this. <laughs> Ikea released some furniture with bent legs in it and called it the Yuri line, so he sued them. He uh, also sued Timex for showing uh, someone that was trying to bend forks and other items but failed to stop a Timex watch. And in that particular case, G- Geller not only lost, but he was fined $150,000 for filing a frivolous lawsuit. See, that's because... One of the other things that Geller did, it wasn't just bending spoons and whatnot. It was slowing down watches and making time move slower. And that was what Timex was sort of playing off. It was like, hey, he can bend spoons, but he can't stop the time on our watches. But yeah, he did then a frivolous lawsuit that he lost. And also, 1998, the Broadcasting Standards Commission in the UK rejected a complaint made by Geller saying that it wasn't unfair to have magicians showing how they duplicate psychic feats on the UK Equinox episode, Secrets of the Super Psychics. But the thing is, Luke, why would he be upset about that? Because his powers are real. Well, exactly, yes, yeah. Because as you and I know, Ash, he got his powers from aliens. Yeah. We're not going to get sued by him, are we? I I doubt he's going to hear this podcast. Oh, don't fucking (laughs) say that. I mean, we haven't even touched upon the fact that Michael Jackson was the best man when he renewed his wedding vows in the new millennium. I would say, if Yuri Geller did end up listening to this podcast and decided to sue us, nothing we've said is wrong. We have perhaps made fun that he has got his powers from aliens, but I'm literally just saying back what he has said previously. I'm not making any aspersions against him. I mean, if I was to call him a fraudulent, manipulative, scam artist that preys on the weaknesses of other people, if I was to say that... if ju- Just in case you were, in, the, in this hypothetical world that you could say something like that, yes. He might have grounds for some form of defamation. If I was to say that he has frequently hid behind charitable donations to avoid being scrutinised for some questionable tax practices then he might be able to, I don't know, attack me or sue me for some sort of defamation. But whatever you want to say about him, he's incredibly rich. It's kind of disgusting. I'm glad for the most part he's off of our TVs. And that's just my personal opinion. Nothing he can sue me about there. He is mega rich. Like by the time the, the 70s were over and it was into the 80s, it was reported like he was a millionaire multi-times over. And continues to be a very, very wealthy man. And you mentioned earlier, he kept very famous circles. He was the guy that sort of brokered the deal between Michael Jackson and Martin Bashir for that very famous ITV documentary. When I think back to this period of time and my knowledge of Yuri Geller, it was just he bent spoons. And that was the sort of thing that, that, that I, that's the only thing I really knew him for. Like if anyone, like you would like make fun of things with spoons at school or try and bend spoons, you'd be like, oh, you're trying to be like Yuri Geller. But that was pretty much the extent of my knowledge of him. 
And you kind of mentioned that you know, he would often do things for charities and stuff that may be seen in other ways. That's kind of what he's here to promote, is promoting his magazine that covers things like UFOs and whatnot. And Dominic Diamond said, oh, it's a non-profit magazine. And Yuri Gillespie clarifies, like, oh, no, no, my profits just go to this. There are, there some is of the, my profits. Some of my profits are going to save the children. So it's, it's not quite the non-profit magazine that Dominic Diamond presumed it was. If he just said, all of my part of the profits are going to save the children, I'd be like, still a scumbag, but okay. Fair enough. Some of my profits. And then we get into this part, and this goes on for ages. Now, we decided we're going to do a little experiment of your, your paranormal powers. Now, before the show, I wrote down... A, I made a drawing on a bit of paper, yes. which I'm now going to try to beam to you. Now, I must make this quite clear. You know that I, more than anyone, would not lie to you. Yuri has no way of having possibly seen what I have drawn. Right? It might work, it might not work. As long as no you way. really drew a drawing. I really, okay. drew, I really drew something. It's in here, and I'm going to try and think, visualize it now. Exactly. And you're going to draw exactly. it. Exactly. Now, look, Dominic, I am taking a risk because this is television. If it fails, it's not a good feeling. But if you really believe that you can transmit to me the drawing, yep. I'll draw it. Okay. Begin. Look at staring onto my face. Now you see, I close my eyes, I can talk while I do this. And I visualize a TV screen, and into the screen, yes, keep drawing it over and over in your mind, over and over. Yes. Yes, I- I'm getting something. Keep keep doing it. tree or a flower but this is I, I i don't know what it is i'm showing it to the camera okay i, I, I maybe it's an unfinished drawing but it, it could oh be. that is i know and i have i cannot believe this right that was supposed to be what a pair it? of scissors i got it then because i thought about coming here and this is this i put this in my pocket right before we did this on two sheets of paper exactly and that's what i did that is absolutely yeah. unbelievable but look i must show you that if you look I'm showing it to the camera. If you look at my drawing from here to here, look, and yours, look, from here to here, hold this, and you'll see it's going to be the same size. Let me quickly show it to the camera. Look. It is exactly the same size as well. And there's no explanation to this. It's, It's pure telepathy. This thing where, like, Dom has done a drawing on a piece of paper, and he's trying to tell Yuri what he has drawn in this piece of paper using only his mind and and yuri is going to replicate what dominic diamond has drawn using only his mind and <laughs> you kind of you know you said earlier when it's like what yuri does is basically sort of like prey on sort of people this and the other he always reveals that within this because people usually draw a house or a flower so it's usually an easy guess but he said but this is something different what he draws is a pair of scissors and Dom reveals that he had also drawn a pair of scissors and they're like, they look identical. They are basically the same size. And Dominic Diamond is legit, well, he seems legit impressed by all of this. There are a lot of different ways this trick can be done. One of which is, of course, while it may be out of sight of Yuri Geller, one of his people, one of his assistants catches a glimpse of it. That's a thing. The other is, is Yuri Geller or his assistant gives Dominic a clipboard and goes, draw a picture on this. The clipboard's gimmicked. There's some carbon paper. There's a piece of paper underneath. Uh, the other is 
subliminals, which can often be a case of he's not going to draw what you've seen. He's just going to describe it. So kind of like there's a subliminal stuff and that's based on what he's drawing. In this particular case, I'm willing to bet that it was the carbon paper gimmick, purely because not only does he draw what Dominic drew, but the proportions are almost exact. Because that's where Yuri sort of like shows that this is this proves that he's got telepathy powers because not only did he draw the same thing, it's exactly the same size or the proportion. And it looks like identical what he's drawn. And like you, the, the carbon paper thing is probably what happened. And there was definitely a conversation. This was obviously set up beforehand that Yuri knew that they were going to be doing this because that's what he always does in his shows. In that Carson incident, the, the 73 Carson thing, on that show, he says... I was told I was coming here to do an interview. I wasn't told I was prepared for this. And when he did Merv Griffin, he had everything prepared in advance to go on there and do things. When when Yuri Geller does appearances, he knows exactly what he's going on that show to do so he can prepare things or do this and that. Because you're right, it's a parlor trick. So there's had to be a way. I mean, granted, he says there is no explanation. It's just telepathy. But there is obviously a way that they have done this so that he can do the the classic parlor trick of, I have just read your mind and created this. Credit to Geller, though. He's very good at bullshit and very good at, you know, the performance of like, oh, I'm reading your mind. Like, oh, I'm closing my eyes now because I'm trying to read your energy and all this sort of gubbins and stuff. He's very good at that performative aspect of it. There's, there's clearly a reason why he's done very well for himself in his career. I love magicians. Like, growing up, I thought Paul Daniels was great. I love Tommy Cooper with the crap magic. Penn and Teller. Who doesn't love Penn and Teller? We can speak about them in just a moment. I've even got classic book, Penn and Teller's How to Play with Your Food, which uh, has a trick in it that almost got me expelled from school. (laughs) And so much of what they do, while the tricks are great, the reason you don't see the strings is because of the performance aspect. Penn and Teller are the perfect example because Penn is so... Uh, Igracious is so big, is so loud, Teller is so quiet. Especially when you see them live, it's very difficult to focus on the entire stage because one is always drawing the eye by what they're saying or what they're not saying. But they will also admit we are not paranormal, we are not supernatural. What we do is tricks. And where Yuri upsets so many people is the fact that he does have this showmanship, he does have this kind of like natural bullshit talent that all really good magicians need, but he passes it off as a legitimate psychic gift. Yeah. And he is doing the sort of tricks that most magicians won't do, not because it's dishonest, but because it is taking advantage of people. But Luke, leaving aside all the stuff Yuri Geller is undoubtedly going to hit us with a lawsuit over, there is one silver lining to this entire bit of shtick which is Dominic Diamond and Yuri Geller are scissoring on national TV. You don't get that on Countdown. And uh, another uh, close encounter of a paranormal kind is Mr Kirk Ewing has helped me through this challenge. Kirk, what's the most powerful thing your mind's ever done? Well, I did plant a subconscious thought to wear a dodgy suit in your head. Oh, and it's uh, obviously not worked. <laughs> Next time, maybe, Kirk. OK, Kirk, have you got any tips for Yuri on this? Well, apparently the tip here is once you're wearing your little finger thing, uh, think aggressive to go left. 
and think complacency to turn right in this downhill mine ski type challenge. Is that some kind of political allegory there? I don't know if it is, it's just basically <laughs> that's how you do it, okay? Kirk Ewing is in the booth because of course he is, this is a joke segment, and they have, you know, they have a bit of patter back and forth. Kirk explains the idea of, of the mind drive, which is that you think aggressively to go left and complacency to go right. But kind of as we talked about back in Series 5 and again here, the game more or less plays itself, which again all sort of winds me up when he gets to the end and sort of Yuri Geller shows off how great he is with his telepathy for making this game look so easy when it's actually very easy. But I, I did pop a little bit for um, Tom's thinking that the whole left-right thing was this big political allegory, which is like, it's a very charged thing to say here in 2022, but in 1996 was a perfectly harmless thing to say on television. It's held up well as a statement, I've got to <laughs> yeah. be honest. So anyway, Yuri, like, okay, he gets 18 out of the 20, misses a couple, hits some rocks, but for the most part, gets a spoon-bending score of 18 out of 20. He only needs to get 15 to win the joystick. And Yuri afterwards is like, it's thrilling, it's exciting, you really have to focus your mind into the game. And Dom's like, yeah, the programmer said that if you think aggressively, you go to the left, calm to the right. Yuri, what were you thinking of for the aggressive bit? And Yuri's like, no, 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 I was just thinking left and right. I'm psychic. Aliens <laughs> gave me these powers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, Don makes a reference to uh, Reading FC, um, which, you know, like, Yuri has got some ties to. That's the other reason why Yuri Geller used to come up a lot in sort of playground conversations, because I lived in Reading, and Yuri Geller would often go to Reading FC games, and he was sort of, like, involved with the club in some aspect. He was involved in a couple of other football clubs as well, and you'd, like, because football clubs would sort of bring him in to be, like, you know, uh, extra brought him in to do, like, energy-infused crystals and all this sort of stuff. And they won a game, and that was it, wasn't and it? That's yeah. it? And that's it. And like, and that's it. And like, when with Reading, like he, they avoided relegation a few years from this point in our timeline, and he basically takes sort of credit for that. And I've got this quote here from Reading manager Alan Pardew. He basically dismissed it, saying that like, as soon as we get a bit of joy, thanks to all the hard work and efforts of my staff and players, Yuri Geller suddenly comes out of the blue and tries to claim all the limelight. And that's exactly what it was, but he was, did like remarkably have ties to my hometown. I think with anyone else, I'd have really enjoyed that little challenge. Unfortunately, as it's Yuri Geller, I did not enjoy that at all. We've lucked out in not really having any guests that are socially unacceptable. We, I mean, given this was made in the 90s, we are really fucking lucky. We've had to dodge a few things with, um, with, with movies. Yeah. Yeah, like like anything with Woody Allen, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Roman yeah. Polanski, similar sort of thing. Michael Jackson, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Michael Jackson came up on Games Master, but it wasn't Michael Jackson. No. Um, this is the first time when I just been like, I don't want to discuss this guy because I know what will happen, and it's exactly what did happen. I got on a rant. I don't know how much you'll hear of it, but Yuri Geller genuinely angers me. Also, just to say, his whole magazine bullshit. <laughs> the most paranormal magazine in the world. I think the 14 times, which predates it by a good number of decades, probably has a lawsuit in the making there. This, to me, is a gimmicky waste of time. Much like the Mind Drive itself was a gimmicky waste of time. It was done because he was a name at the time, known for doing something, and they had this little bit of tech that was gimmicky based and mind based and whatnot. And like, you know, when we did the Mind Drive back in Series 5, we you know, it was 
sort of revealed to us then that the, the game's not real. It's not a real thing. It's not actually controlling things with your mind. So all this whole thing just was a massive waste of time for me. Which is a shame because I enjoyed the first half of this episode so much. But this takes up the vast 75% of the second half of this episode is this challenge. And it really like bogs down the episode. It's not a direct comparison we'll make because they're different series. Which is the worst celebrity challenge? This movie maker or build a PC? Oh, that's such a good question. Do you know what? I think this is worse because this is condensed into one like one whole chunk of the show. The other ones were like spread out over an episode, so you at least you had sort of like moments of reprieve with other things. This is concentrated into like you know seventy five percent of the second half of this episode. Also, Lee and Herring, great, great, great lads. Well, whilst not happy to be there, Patsy Palmer and Dean Gaffney, absolutely fine. We got to talk about EastEnders. Yuri Gallo, it's probably the most negative we've ever been about an individual. And we've had John Major on this show. Yeah, and Luke, we still might get sued out of it. <laughs> also, creepily, he kisses both mermaids. They don't kiss him, he kisses them. Fuck off, Geller. <laughs> he does offer to bend the joystick, which was the only thing of his that I laughed at. I've chosen you to direct our next project, so welcome to the studio. Now, making movies is one of the greatest jobs in the world. You've got to have talent and intuition, patience and energy and the real innate ability to tell a story. What you're saying, Stevie, is it's a bit like Jack and Ori. Steven Spielberg's director's chair is the first CD-ROM that truly allows you to create your own movie. With Quentin Tarantino and super hair babe Jennifer Aniston from Friends as your stars, the potential is there to make a real blockbuster. Steven is on hand to advise you on the way, and just as well, because the process is frighteningly realistic. If it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. So you start with the scripts and the dubious talents of bald writers Ted and Terry. And when you're done, get on out there to production and hit us a home run. Once you've sorted out the plot, you're ready to shoot. Amongst other things, you'll need to decide which camera angles to shoot from. And action! And how to edit your material together in the cutting room. Jack, it's time. Along the way, though, you'll encounter all sorts of problems that threaten to turn your project into a man city of the silver screen. We shot so late last night. This room here is going to take a while to light. It's going to take about 20 minutes to get Ma ready. Whoa, this is a pretty big mistake. This is the part where somebody usually gets fired. But this whole second half of the episode here is saved. Oh, oh thank God. Okay, so time and place is very important when we're talking about this podcast and stuff i know exactly where i was when i watched this episode in my bedroom and i can i can picture exactly what my bedroom looked like where my tv was and watching this episode specifically seeing this feature because i didn't know about this game until i saw this feature and then a month maybe a month or two later i'm in the virgin megastore in reading town center and what do i see on the shelf but Steven Spielberg's director's chair. And I said to my mum, that's what I saw on Games Master. And I bought that CD-ROM on that day. And I was ob 
obsessed with this CD-ROM. I played this thing all the time, like virtually like every day logging on and, and playing onto this game. Because Steven Spielberg was the first director that I became obsessed with. He was the first director that I knew by name. Like I was obsessed with movies. I loved Star Wars and I loved Back to the Future and, and, and a handful of other things. But like the director was never really like, I, I didn't know the name George Lucas or Bob Zemeckis or anything like that. But when Jurassic Park came out, I was so obsessed with that movie that I had to know everything about it. And that's where I learned the name Steven Spielberg. Then when I went back and watched Back to the Future, Spielberg's name crops up in the credits. And so I start to learn about all the people that made Back to the Future. And then you learn about his relationship with George Lucas. So I learned more stuff about Star Wars. My obsession with movies comes from Spielberg. And that by extension, a lot of playing this CD-ROM because I played the shit out of this CD-ROM. I wish I'd played this CD-ROM because the more I saw about it, that I think I said to you off air before we started recording, I got to track this down like as an abandoned where kind of, you know, the, the people that package this stuff together to rescue it from the dumpsters of life. I love Spielberg as well. I would think I was a few years before you, but the movies that sparked my imagination, so many of them were his, Jaws. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Obviously, we're both together on Jurassic Park. And he was also an accessible, enthusiastic director. You go back and you watch George Lucas talk about Star Wars, be it period interviews or relatively contemporary ones, does not sound like he has a passion for film most of the time. But Spielberg talking about, you know, working with dinosaurs talking about the shark, talking about a giant truck, you know, chasing people down. Who was driving it? We just don't know. Spielberg's passion comes across in his interviews, for better or for worse. He is someone that you feel like you can engage with. He must be a press kit editor's dream, because if you've got footage of Spielberg, you've got something to work with. And this CD-ROM shows that. Yeah, and he's, he's all over it as well. But like a load of people within the industry are in this. Ted Elliott and Terry Russo, like Dean Cundy is in this. Like, oh, I was, Dean Cundy. These are names that I then recognize because I'm like, that, Dean Cundy, Jurassic Park. Like I knew that name so I could like piece these two together. Also, Friends was huge at the time. So Jennifer Aniston was a name that I knew. Tarantino, uh, you know, at this point here, so it's 1996, I'm 10-ish years old. So I, I'm not particularly au fait with the work of Quentin Tarantino, nor should I have been. But I, when I came around to like learning about Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, I was like, oh, he's the guy from Director's Chair. I thought he was an actor. And then, you know, finding out that he was a director first, which is what Dom makes a joke about in this. But it's if you haven't played this game or you haven't seen this episode, you just go through and make a movie. Steven Spielberg hires you. You then go to Russo and Elliot and they write a script. You pick, do you want to do a drama? Do you want to do a comedy? You then go and shoot that movie. You pick the angles that you want to shoot it from. And you can take that footage, take it to an editing room, and you cut it together. And then you put some sound effects over it and some music over it. And then Steven Spielberg does this big premiere for it. And if it's successful and you don't go over budget because things happen along the way, you unlock more shots that you can use or sort of like, and you can make the movie look even better. I once hosted a screening of a movie that I made on director's chair. And I made posters for it because you get to make posters for the movie. That's part of the sort of the marketing aspect of it. And I printed off those posters and I stuck them up around my house so my parents could watch the movie that I had made, my first directorial debut, because it comes up at the end saying directed by Lou Cohen, even though it's, uh, technically it is directed by Steven Spielberg. 
it is for like a 10 year old kid who's just becoming obsessed with movies this is a magical magical little tool i've watched like a few youtube reviews of it that'd be like it's very limited and it is but in a 10 year old's mind this is it feels limitless also they're explaining stuff while it is gimmicky there are games and they're not making it all you know sugar-coated as they go into in this feature you run two long days unions will complain there'll be problems with lighting with the weather actors will have hissy fits the, you know the writers strike whatever it's very simplified but they have kind of highlighted a couple of the issues that you would encounter making a union film in hollywood i find it amazing that we do have the really weird cast of Jennifer Aniston and Quentin Tarantino. They are your leads. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino's like done maybe half a dozen bit parts up until this point and from Dust Till Dawn, which he probably would have been filming around the same time that he was making this footage, or or just just before or just after. And he's in that movie because it's directed by his mate. And he, you know, and he like wrote the script and stuff. But like it's, you know, and it's they're your heroes. Your villains are Penn and Teller. Like, what a bizarre little cast this is. This was my introduction to Penn and Teller. I knew about the existence of this game. I legitimately had forgotten or did not know that Penn and Teller were in this. I was elated when I saw the little clip of Penn Gillette pop up the first time I watched this through, and I'm just like, oh, I gotta watch this. It's absolutely amazing. I get it. I, this brought back so many like memories flooding back seeing that pc our family pc and where it was the wallpaper on our living room wall and all this sort of stuff which is where our pc was making these movies and like you know you make the same movie even if it's if it's comedy or it's a drama it's the same plot it's just the comedy one's a bit wackier quentin tarantino complaining that his last meal he didn't get the baked alaska I think you can also get that shot in the dramatization, in the drama version of it. I think like later on when you've unlocked stuff, you get to do that version of the scene in the drama one. Because I think like Dean Cundy pops up and be like, hey, I mean, what if we try and do this as a comedy scene instead? And I think you get to add that one in because I, I, I seem to recall that anyway. But you do make the same movie, but I just like, I got so into it. And I, I remember once doing it with a friend of mine and you watch this, you, Jennifer Anderson going into a room and, and picking up this item. And I said to my friend, because I was so into this, I was like, I mean, I, I, that was really good there, but I want to see if she can do more if I do another take of it. And I do another take. And what does, this, what does the game do? Just play the same clip that it had just done, because it's not a real movie making thing. It's an interactive CD-ROM and you're just asking it to play clips. So I just watched her do the exact same clip over again. In my mind's eye, she did a much better take on that second run. And I was like, that's the one. Yeah, we've got to take that one. We use that second clip when we get into the editing room. We've seen and we've talked about a lot of shovelware CD-ROM stuff already. And really, we are still at the beginning of what, you know, the multimedia interactive CD thing. We've got a good few years of it yet before it starts to die on its ass. We've then got interactive DVD-ROMs where the quality of the video is better. But other than that, mm -hmm. however, I'm definitely going to go and have a go at this. I'm definitely going to have a play because it just looks so much fun. Yeah, it is. I'm, I, I've got one criticism about this feature here, is that Dominic Diamond at the end of it calls it Steven Spielberg Director's Lab. That's a different game, Dom. That's what we had Leon Herring play in Series 5. This is Steven Spielberg Director's Chairman. Worse than Virtua Fighters. 70% <laughs> <laughs> episode. <laughs> 
we might not be far off it because that Yuri Geller thing is definitely going to weight it down as well. Uh, just a quick note is this would not be the last time that uh, Penn Jillette would have a fairly major acting role in something. Interestingly, one film that leapt to mind is one I saw at Grimfest a good few years ago up north called Director's Cut, which stars Penn Jillette as Herbert Blount, a mega fan who aspires to replace the real director of a movie by basically abducting the actress that played the heroine of that movie and like refilming scenes of it in his basement. It's a really dark, messed up movie at, uh, directed by Adam Rifkin, written by Penn Jillette, stars Penn Jillette, Missy Pyle, uh, Tellers in there, and the late, great Gilbert Gottfried. Do you know what? I'd completely forgotten about this movie until you mentioned it, because I saw it at Fright Fest in 2016. Well, that was the year when I was at Grimfest, yeah. because it was the same year it did both festivals. I was just thinking then, like, I, I hadn't really thought about it. And then, like, you would, or, you know, you'd sort of talk about things. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you mentioned the plot. And I was like, God, I seem to remember that movie. And yeah, lo and behold, it's because I did. And I was just checking. And I was, yep, my review of it is still online. <laughs> what did you rate it? Let's have a look. What did I rate it? <laughs> Five stars. I fucking loved it. Nice. I wrote here in my review, enough good words cannot be said about director's cut. May not be to everyone's sensibilities, but if you can get into Herbert as a character and you've seen enough fan edit to appreciate the finer details of Rifkin's work as a director, you'll get a huge kick out of it. Pendulet is an incredible talent both behind and in front of the camera, and the rest of the cast are just as good. Every joke lands, even the ones that aren't about Hollywood or crowdfunded movies. Director's Cut is an incredible joy and wickedly hilarious. I need to rewatch this movie. I need to refind it. Same. I don't think I've seen it since Grimfest. And neither have I. And clearly, I fucking loved it. Okay, thank you for watching today's show. Uh, you can go now because it's quite literally over. Uh, next week sees the start of our annual Games Master Footy Tournament. And I'll leave you with this question. If Yuri Geller was a spoon, would he be bent? Good night. And that explains why Yuri Geller was here. Ugh, I hate that he had to mention him at the end. <laughs> but Ash, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Um, we've kind of gone through some of our thoughts already a little bit, but let's let's condense them down. What did you make of this episode? It really is an episode of two halves because the news was kind of fun. I mean, just having a chance to talk about Sega, Sony, uh, the Barbie fashion designer stuff. That was great. Then we've got Virtua Cop, Martin Mathers. That's excellent stuff even though it's really sad that he didn't win it. The games, getting to talk about Star Gladiators, Killer Instinct Gold, and again, Virtual Cop 2. And at that point, like as we come out of those reviews, I'm sat there going, oh, this is comfortably a 90% or more episode. Strong episode, strong start. And then we come back, and I cannot think of someone that has taken a bigger shit in my cereal on this podcast than Yuri Geller. Yeah, and it just drags it down, the whole thing. And if I think, if not for the fact that we both love Spielberg and love films, I don't think that the feature would have been enough to pull it back. It's fortunate because it plays to our individual tastes. I mean, you, as you said, you used to play this every day. So I'm sure it was a proper rollicking trip down memory lane and we've just both, you know, rediscovered this movie that we'd forgotten we'd seen where Pendulette's kind of a psychopath and that's really cool. So I'm left confused because... By time, it's 65% a great episode and 35% a 
unfortunately features Yuri Geller. How about you? Yeah, I'm I'm in a I'm in a similar position. I'm in the exact same position. I thought the first half of this episode was so strong. The reviews are good, news is great, and I love the the Virtual Cop 2 challenge. Lovely to see Martin back on the show. And it just works as a challenge, like despite the fact that he doesn't do it. The whole presentation, it was cool. A guy playing two arcade machines at the same time. Ten-year-old me's mind would have been absolutely blown out of it. You know, it would have been amazing. The second half of the show is just, it's such a big gimmicky thing with a big gimmicky celebrity. And it's not what I want from Games Master. Go back to Series 5. They brought on Mr. Motivator to be a joke. But actually, it turned out to be a great episode because they all have fun doing it. They bring on Yuri Geller to be a joke here, but in the end, it's Yuri Geller taking himself very seriously and in turn, Dominic taking him very seriously at the same time and doing a challenge that's a complete joke, but they're taking it very seriously. And it just doesn't feel like Games Master. This feels like, I don't know, just some sort of puff piece and I, and I don't like it. But that final feature at the end, I had such nostalgic love for because it really did put me back into November 21st, 1996 and watching this episode. And really, like when I think about it, the Yuri Geller stuff doesn't, I don't have any memory of watching it there, but I remember watching that feature. I remember watching Martin Mathers. So it, it had zero impact on me. And now watching it here with 2022 eyes and I'm reviewing it for a podcast, it's just a case of uh, it really lets the episode down. Like even even taking out my personal feelings towards Yuri Geller and the, and the game itself, the, the whole segment doesn't work and it lets the episode down. I'm struggling to take my personal opinion of Joey Geller out of this because because that is just how much he gets under my skin. Ugh, I don't know where I sit in scores on this. I had it down as 80, and that was really like a high episode that was dragged down. I would be tempted to go into the late 70s for it, though. because I And I want to put it in the recommend just for, the, for that first half alone. Because this is a, it's a classic challenge. I was hovering around 81, 82 because you gotta watch the Virtua Cop 2 Have challenge. And and the feature is there and the news is fun and the reviews are fun. Just just skip the middle section. If, if one bad challenge, even though it is a huge chunk of the second half, one bad challenge shouldn't drag it down as much as maybe I, I might let it do. But I am I'm I was at 80% and I'm sticking at 80%. I'm gonna go with 82, and I wish it wasn't that low. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. If you'd like to check us out on social media, we're on Twitter at underconsolepod on Twitter at under.console on Instagram. And you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to interact with us in real time with other listeners, with other fans of retro pop culture, retro games, and just geeky stuff in general, you can do so by joining our Discord. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other TV shows from the 80s and 90s, and our monthly community show Under Console Nation. At the £5 level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad-free, and at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do they get? Oh, at the £10 level, they get our Patreon pack, which contains our golden, glittery, under-consultation joystick waggler's mug, stuffed with stickers, badges, retro sweeties and retro goodies 
As a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie Smith, Ian, Harriet's Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brandt, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia, Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew, and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.